Hello and welcome to How to Start API Contract Testing podcast series with me, Lewis Pacman Prescott, where we'll be talking about the challenges of testing in microservices and how to start API contract testing to make microservice tests faster, more stable and more realistic. Really excited about the guests we've got lined up. Can't wait to get tuned in. Welcome to today's podcast. The first guest is Neil Sirrett from ClearBank. Neil used to be my manager at ASOS and now is a good friend of mine. In this episode, we talk about modern testing principles, testing at scale, bi-directional contracts, and much more. Enjoy the podcast. Please tell us, Neil, what you are, what you do, and your experience in testing. I'll be whatever you want me to be, Lewis. Um, <laughs> No, I'm a, a my, my actual title is Senior QA SDET, and I work at ClearBank currently. But I've been I've been in software and software testing since 2007, so coming up what 15 years now, actually. Yeah. Wow. wow. Time flies. Our time flies. So, what what kind of experience have you had? What how have you worked in in microservices before? Yeah, so I guess my first exposure to microservices in earnest was when I joined ASOS back in around 2010, I think. No, that's a lie, 2015. So yeah, it was at a time when they were moving from on-premise solution, monolith, traditional setup into the cloud, into uh, using Microsoft Azure and and looking at how they can break down their monolith into, into discrete microservices. And yeah, obviously all the pains and learnings that came with it, um, getting to get used to failures in the cloud, in the cloud, understanding how to manage that, how to test for those different scenarios, talking about massive scale, Black Friday weekends were always fun. And yeah, more recently moving on to ClearBank in 2020. So a different, different domain, but in terms of tech, quite similar, also using Microsoft Azure, and they've been through a, a similar journey actually. So they, they actually only started up in 20, around 2015, 16, they built something to get to get live to keep their investors happy um, but it was mm-hmm. kind of a monolith um, and then since then they've broken that down into into these microservices and yeah at the moment we're trying to we're having constant discussions about where our domain boundaries lie and and uh, disagreements <laughs> and agreements on how we, how we how we get to that yeah exactly i think that's one of the big things around uh, microservices is understanding what you own and what other teams own and then where that kind of responsibility lives because in environments that I work in you don't necessarily have a team that that cares about that overarching journey for the user you know marketing care about that but not necessarily a software team so I think that's definitely an area of contention when it comes to microservices. Yeah but I think it is it's wholly necessary I think if you're trying to build something if you're always concerned about every, the whole user journey, that, that can that can weigh you down and you can lose focus. So I think having those mm-hmm. clear distinctions, those, those clear domain boundaries are really helpful mm-hmm. because it, it helps you focus and and deliver on, on your objectives rather than getting, getting bogged down or sidetracked. Absolutely. And I think there also can be quite a lot of overlap <laughs> and where that overlap lives, you can duplicate the work. There can be tests which are maintained by different teams, which actually cover the same thing. So I think you can 
you can find efficiencies there as well. Yeah, and that actually is something when I when I joined Clearbank coming up for two years ago, actually, they had us that they although they'd broken up their their application into discrete microservices, they still had a lot of kind of end-to-end kind of regression test packs that would kind of exercise in the full user journey and all the different kind of product offer, offerings that they had. Mm. Part of what, what I've been uh, advocating for is, is, to, is to clarify those boundaries and actually break up the, the tests as well and make sure that we're testing close to the domain. We're not, we're not trying to duplicate our testing effort and do the same kind of exercise as what's been done with the microservices. And that yeah. obviously leads to much clearer ownership as well and better maintainability and all the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. So in your intro, you mentioned about ASOS testing at scale in Black Friday. So what are the kind of areas that you're looking out for when when you are testing at that scale? Yeah, so I think as with any kind of performance testing, it's about understanding well, any any type of kind of testing, it's about understanding requirements. And I think mm-hmm. although performance and load testing, it's a it's a different potentially different skill set and different tooling. But fundamentally, the, you know, the, the fundamentals of testing are the same. You need to understand what you're trying to prove. Um, and then from there, you can go on to, to define, define your test approach from there. But obviously, it's, it, you know, people often, if you ask them a question, a functional kind of, uh, a question about functional requirements, it often comes quite naturally to them. You know, do you want yeah. this? This button to be green or red? Oh, I think I like green today. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're if you're saying how many users are you expecting to be logging into this page at this mm. time of the day or distributed over this period of time, those things aren't always as easy to come come by. Um, particularly if you're speaking to to kind of subject matter experts around the business. So so the, what what we what I've always found is what's really key is actually having the right level of telemetry in place observability strategy in place in your application to make sure that obviously you can ask your stakeholders what they think the load will be or what the load profiles will look like but often the proof is in the pudding actually and if you've got something running production and customers are using it then then having the right telemetry to actually understand what that load profile looks like that's really key to them building up the right load test model or the um uh what's the word i'm looking for Building up the right workload model for your for your load or performance tests that are going to kind of mimic uh, what you're seeing in production. Absolutely, I don't know if you were um, in the kind of ground of it when I when I was there, but the the biggest thing that I remember about my time at ASOS was Black Friday sales, twenty four seven support, being on rotor, um, having to get in at midnight and then not leaving until like 8 a.m. the next day. Did you get involved with that yourself? Fortunately, I didn't have to come in out of hours on Black Friday, but I did do it a few times for the um, for old legacy releases when we before we broke up into microservices, oh. and we still had okay. to have outages. Yeah. Obviously, we, ASOS are uh, an international brand, but at the time, they were very much focused on the, the UK market and, and having a few hours. If they had to choose an hour, an hour to be out, to, to have the website off, then doing that in the middle of the night UK time was preferable to doing it in the middle of the mm-hmm. day. So yeah, we when we had when we had scheduled releases once every kind of month or six weeks, then we'd schedule them in the middle of the night, and uh, we'd have to come in early hours to to support that process. Wow, that takes me back 
for sure. All the time where you're moving stuff from one server to another before the times of uh, the blue-green deployments and everything like that. Just taking a short interlude now to share with you an opportunity to grab a free course I have at pacman.co.uk where I explain how to implement API contract stubs within your end-to-end tests using Cypress and Paxlo. If you want your end-to-end tests to be faster, more stable and more realistic, then definitely check out the free course at pacman.co.uk. Now back to the podcast. You talk about the journey that ASOS went on from monolith to uh, breaking down into microservices. So what do you feel like the differences are between your test approach with a monolith and with a microservice? Yeah, I think I think it offers a really, you know, good opportunity for a, a tester or, or a developer who's interested in testing to kind of get much more, much closer to the implementation and stop looking at the entire system as a kind of black box and actually get get down deep in the dirty dirty side of the program and actually understand how how to best test to um to, to adapt your test strategy to test in the most appropriate way rather than looking outside in you can actually start looking at how it's being implemented and looking at you know more intelligent faster ways to test looking at things like component testing integration testing and obviously with that not just looking at the functional side of things but also looking at mm-hmm. we talked about performance but you know not just testing the performance of the entire system you know but we can test the performance of a single service and and it makes it much faster to find where those bottlenecks are in the system, much easier to diagnose those issues as well. Mm. So I think that's the main the main difference is being able to, rather than always looking from the outside in at the application in more of a traditional testing mindset, but actually to kind of get, get down in the detail and, and devise a test approach which actually suits the application. Yeah, definitely. So... At ClearBank, you you don't necessarily have the traditional kind of tester, do you? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, so I guess our role is more in in the kind of model of a kind of a coach or mentor to the team and, and less as, a, as an actual individual contributor, if you like. Mm-hmm. So although I do, I do still kind of write code, it's it's you know on my own as it you know individually it is much more about how do i coach the team into improving its testing practices and mm-hmm. and act as a consultant so when they have issues or when they have questions they they can, they can come to me or bring me into their their, their meetings into their refinements or their planning sessions mm-hmm. um, to consult me on on the best way about going to test something so i think alan page was the one who came up with the the modern testing principles Mm-hmm. And, and I guess I've used that extensively to kind of educate other people around what my role is, because that's kind of how I, how the role was pitched to me when I was um, when I was hired. Mm-hmm. And I find that's quite a useful tool to actually say here, here is the kind of you may have misconceptions about how how you've worked with tests in the past or the kind of skills or mm-hmm. the mindset that they came with, but actually what I'm being asked to do in this role is is much more advocating for good practices around testing. And, and and facilitating and partnering with with engineering teams, not necessarily just offering a testing service or being another member of the team working on tickets on the board. Yeah, so that sounds really interesting. So how do developers kind of react to that? How do developers uh, find not having that kind of safety net, you know, of having a tester to fall back on? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, and it's it's one of those things, you know, if every team, every individual is, is different. Um, I'd say the, the lion's share of the engineers I work with have, have got quite a kind of well-ingrained testing mindset. Mm-hmm. They're obviously all doing TDD or at least doing some kind of unit testing. So they are mm-hmm. having to think about the testability of their application. They are having to think about testing. So to go from writing unit tests to then thinking about kind of higher level tests and it's not too much of a leap. I think that the the, the biggest challenge I always find is, is is just the difference in mindset. And it's if if I'm if yeah, me or you Lewis are sat in a in a refinement meeting mm. and someone's kind of saying, okay, we need this new feature and describing it to us, I think kind of naturally being kind of people from a testing background, we're 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 automatically thinking about, okay, questioning those requirements, challenging assumptions, thinking about good questions we can ask, uh, understanding how that feature or that that requirement might integrate with other features or other product offerings, how it might be used by the customers, all those kind of things that you know kind of bread and butter to to people who come from a testing mindset. Whereas developers, not always, but but a lot of developers will naturally think to okay how am i going to implement this and be less inclined to kind of really question the requirements so i find that the biggest challenge is often having to actually slow the team down you know in a in a, in a planning or a finance session where you know they naturally want to go straight from here's a requirement to okay how are we going to build it we need this mm. this technology here we need that data store over there whereas actually i i find i'm having to slow them down a little bit and kind of say Let's just pause that that you know solutionizing discussion for for a little bit. Let's just challenge or let's really understand these requirements before we go and make a decision, and that will help us make better better technology decisions and better design decisions. So that's often quite a can can cause some tension. Um, yeah. But I think with practice, you learn to you know when to kind of when to push it and when sometimes you know they've heard enough from me today. Maybe I need to kind of take a step back and. And, and let them run with it. So I think it's it's being pragmatic and, and you know giving the team as much coaching as they as they willing to take, but not pushing it too far that they that you disillusion them. So the, the podcast is about contract testing, so I should probably uh, get onto that subject at some point. So you you were kind of the first person that really encouraged me to get involved with contract testing. I knew what it was, but I. I had never implemented it before, and then Asus kind of had that opportunity to do that. But I know you're kind of experimenting with what your options are in terms of exploring contracts and and building them into your testing. So, what are you going through at the moment? Yeah, so I think we're we're probably not anywhere near as mature as we'd like to be on in terms of contract testing. But certainly, where I found the, the the primary challenge we have at the moment is actually defining our our, our domain boundaries because until we know we're clear on where those boundaries are it's hard to actually think about where the contracts are and where the testing is required at the moment sure. although we do have like a distributed system it is kind of still treated as a, as a as a single product and those domain boundaries aren't clear so me going in and trying to insert contracts and contract tests in the middle of what I think is two separate domains might actually stand in the way because that might be that might not actually be a, a clear boundary that we want to enforce. Actually, that might be a bit more of a fluid boundary that we might be that might be kind of refactored or changed over time. 
So that's one thing I've had to kind of take a step back on. Um, but I think in, in, in terms of where I see the benefits for ClearBank at the moment with contract testing is actually on our public interfaces. ClearBank, our, our kind of main product is a public facing uh, web API. Um, it allows mm-hmm. other banks, other fintechs, other financial service providers to integrate directly with, with our public APIs. And we offer a bunch of different payment services. So those, those external APIs have contracts, they have well-defined uh, documented contracts, and obviously we do test them, but we don't have a specific strategy around contract testing, which means that you know if, we, if we're not on our game, we could potentially make a breaking change to that interface. Yeah. Um, and that would obviously have, have customer impact. So I think that's one area I think that ClearBank, well, ClearBank I would like to invest a bit more in in contract testing around that area and see how we yeah. can really kind of refine that strategy and make sure that we're we're um yeah we're, we're making sure we're not letting our standards slip in terms of our public interfaces yeah absolutely i think that's a really good use case is people often think about contract testing from a internal perspective like what you own and what you have control over with your web app or your API service, but actually defining those contracts and having those tests to say, okay, this is what's going out to the public and making sure that you conform with those is a really good use case for that. A feature that Packflow are about to introduce with bi-directional contracts will obviously allow you as the provider to kind of put up those contracts and then um, use that in that way. Yeah, I guess that is one challenge is that we, we have, we don't, because we don't necessarily have great engagement with all of our all of our users um yeah obviously lots of them we do but not all of them particularly some of our smaller customers we won't always be able to take a kind of a consumer driven approach no but yeah so the onus will be on us to kind of define the test uh, the test scenarios we need to test for each of our contracts but yeah like you said um the changes that backflow are introducing might might make that a little bit easier for us yeah, and I think also the the thing with the consumer, right, is that you can put that up as like your documentation, right? These are our, how we um, provide you with the information. This is the, the what the responses look like. And then that's living documentation at the same time. And that may come in useful down the line. Yeah, one, one thing I, I often get asked is, why, why do we need to define this thing twice? Why do we need to define yeah. this in... In, uh, in Swagger or OpenAI and in your funny packed language. <laughs> yeah. How would you go about responding to that, Lewis? Yeah, it's a good question. So they, they form different purposes. And as you mentioned about the consumer-driven part, right? Like the Swagger docs are usually generated once you've built the API. So why would you go back and then create the contracts after that? But it comes down to... The static dynamic, I think, is how I would describe it, is that your API docs are your static form of documentation. They're not going to break if you make a breaking change to that contract. They're just going to generate you either a new document or flag that some attributes have changed, not actually going to break in terms of your release process. So I think that's where contract tests come in. And also breaking changes can be very subtle. You might be changing the inners of how you respond to something or changing something from string to an array or something like that. And that's where your kind of open API documents don't really come in because they're not checking for that information. They're just presenting 
what information they're given. So yeah, I think those kind of nuances is how I would pitch it. Yeah, I think I, I think it kind of boils down to the independence of the tests. Whereas, like you said, the the, the document, the swagger documentation might be auto generated. Most likely, is auto generated. So actually, if the code changes, then the documentation changes with it. And if you're relying yeah. on on that to validate, you know, schema validation, then you're you're potentially going to miss a breaking change because, like you said, your your baseline, if you like, is is also changing. So yeah, I think that independence is key, uh, and it's actually something we've I've been caught by in the past is where you've got a kind of integration test calling into an endpoint, but that integration test is part of the application code. It's in the same yeah. solution in the same repository, which is obviously where it should be, but in the same light, it's not very independent because, you know, with tools like IntelliJ and ReSharper and Rider and things like that, you know, it's very easy to do a, a rename across the entire repo and suddenly mm. you've, you've missed that you've actually changed your test and your application, you've introduced breaking change and your tests are all still passing. Yeah. Um, so I think having having independence of, of tests, particularly around public interfaces that, that can't change, is really important here. Really good point, Neil. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on today, Lewis. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, hopefully we can do it again soon. I hope you enjoyed our conversation about testing in microservices. Thanks to Neil for being my first guest and Neil's first time appearing on the podcast. Don't forget to like and follow Ready for the Upcoming Episodes, where we'll dive in deeper to how to get started with contract testing. Also check out my blog and online courses at pacman.co.uk. We've got some really exciting guests coming in the next few episodes, so stay tuned and thanks for listening.